Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by the Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia and dedicated to the proposition articulated by Walter Lippmann during World War II that a strong and balanced foreign policy is the necessary shield of our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman, a counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, a Bulwark contributor, and a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center. And I'm rejoined by my partner in this enterprise after long travels around the around the globe to the Antipodes and beyond, uh, Elliot Cohen, the Robert E. Osgood Professor of Strategy at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and the Arlie Burke Chair in Strategy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Welcome back, Elliot, after long, long travels away. Well, thanks, Eric. It's uh, good to be back. Uh, uh, for Give me if I uh, hack a little bit. I've got uh, just getting over the flu. I don't know if that was travel induced or not. But in any case, uh, I don't know. I don't, I'm not quite sure I feel like saying Happy New Year. I just hope it's a better year than uh, last from the point of view of international politics. Yeah, and domestic politics. So, um, yeah, well, that that's a given. I absolutely uh, agree. I don't know whether your flu is travel-induced. I know mine was uh, earlier uh, in December, so I feel your pain. Um, but uh, I want to hold your reflections on the uh, Antipodes since you were down you know, in the Southern Hemisphere uh, for a later podcast when we can uh, bring that to bear in a discussion of China. But because you've spent, uh, I think, what, about 10 days yeah. In in Israel, I think um, talking about what uh, what is going on in, in uh, the Middle East, Gaza, the war, uh, what's going on in, inside Israel uh, would be of great interest to our listeners. So um, I know you're working on a piece that's going to appear in the Atlantic soon. Why don't we start there and tell us a little bit about about uh, how you've been thinking about uh, the conflict from the, you know, uh, from the beginning. So uh, thanks. Let me just begin by describing the trip. Um, the Israelis uh, indicated to me through a, a friend who's in the foreign ministry uh, that they would be willing to welcome a small delegation of national security and military experts. Um, and I agreed to lead it. Um, the condition was that we would fund ourselves. So I was able to get some external American funding. So we didn't have any Israeli funding. But the Israelis facilitated lots of meetings, uh, both on their own and with help from various connections that I had and some members of the group. So a very small group, about seven or eight of us, um, some people from CSIS, from RAND. It was bipartisan. We had a former deputy national security advisor under uh, Barack Obama. Uh, we did. We had uh, our friend Mick Ryan, who we've had on the show before, retired Australian major general, uh, and uh, one or two others. So it was a very expert group. I'd say most of the people were quite familiar with Israel. A couple were not. And it was extraordinarily intense. I mean, as soon as we got off the airplane, we were in uh, dinner with some senior Israeli military planners. Uh, we spent on half the time in Tel Aviv, half the time in Jerusalem, uh, lots and lots of meetings with current and I was going to say retired, but in Israel, they'd never quite retire. Um, senior military and intelligence officials. We also had uh, meetings with um, a politician, with Yuli Edelstein, who's the chairman of the Knesset Foreign Affairs and uh, Security Committee. That's it's really like 
uh, the Armed Services Committee and the Foreign Relations Committee and the Intelligence Committee is all, all wrapped into one. So he's actually a very, very powerful and influential legislator. A couple of uh, some of the best uh, Israeli journalists uh, in both the defense field and uh, the Arab affairs field. And then uh, two day trips, uh, both quite long and uh, pretty profound. We spent a day on the Gaza border. Uh, we went to two of the kibbutzim that were overrun on October 7th, Kibbutz Be'eri and uh, Kibbutz near Oz. And uh, that was... Uh, it was deeply moving. I mean, the, there's no longer uh, human remains, but the, the destruction looks very fresh and it's pretty wrenching, particularly we were shown around in each case by survivors of the attack who you know, were describing, okay, so-and-so lived here. This is what happened to her. This is what happened to her two children and, and so forth. Uh, they, then we went to a, a kind of a weapons exploitation area where they were going through some of the technology that Hamas had with them, which was actually pretty sophisticated. And then to cap what was a pretty hard day, uh, we saw this 47-minute film, which you uh, may have heard of. So for those of you who haven't heard of it, it is it is um, simply a compilation of dash cams and body cams and closed-circuit TV and selfies and things like that. Uh, there are English subtitles, uh, but those are merely translations. There's no commentary at the end. Some of the footage was taken by victims, some by perpetrators. And one of the things that was pretty fiendish about the Hamas attack, they were very deliberately filming all this stuff, including uh, lots of atrocities. And um, it was... I have to tell you the most horrifying thing I've ever seen in my life. And I've seen a fair amount of bad stuff. Um, it was truly the, the barbarity, the cruelty, the torture, uh, rape. I mean, it, and at the end of it, the thing that, that shatters you is they say, okay, this was 10% of the murders that happened that day. Uh, we had another one day excursion, which was to the Northern border, which was fascinating. Uh, we really got pretty close. I don't think we could get that close today because that border has been getting hotter and hotter, meeting with different military commanders, outposts, uh, senior planners, and so forth. We ended up on the Golan Heights, which has actually also been heating up because uh, Iranian-backed militias and Hezbollah are active in the Mount Hermon area. So uh, all in all, really, it was a nonstop. Um, it was fascinating. It was draining. And it did give me some I think some pretty profound insights. I, let me just put out one and then you, you react to it and tell me where you want to go with the conversation. I think the thing, first thing to understand is this is a traumatized society. You see it as soon as you get off the airport where there's a long line of pictures of hostages. You see it in the expressions on people's faces. Um, you know, the hotels are, have, Really, they have some solidarity missions there, but most of the people staying there are refugees from the uh, the two borders in the south and the north. Uh, Israel has a substantial internally displaced person um, problem, about two hundred thousand people all told, and and that that you know that's really the the psychic burden is one that I think a lot of Americans may not fully appreciate. I in this Atlantic piece I've mentioned. 
I proposed the role, the rule of 30, if you want to understand this. So the rule of 30 is whatever the Israelis suffered, multiply it by 30, and you have a sense of what that would mean to the United States. So instead of 1,200 dead, imagine 36,000. You know, instead of 240 hostages, imagine seven or 8,000, and so on. Instead of a couple of hundred rapes, thousands. Um, I mean, it's, it is not surprising that there is a profound trauma. The num- rough numbers were something like about 15 9-11s all in one day. And think back to where we were after 9-11. But the other thing that I would say is that there's a particular kind of trauma that afflicts the Israeli national security elite. I mean, a lot of these are people I've known for a long time. Uh, Some of them I consider friends. And so I have a pretty good idea of what their baseline demeanor is. You know, some reserved, some ebullient, some very cocky some very mild-mannered, and in just about every case, people were way off baseline. You know, some of the most arrogant people that I knew, um, remarkably humble now. Some people who were pretty mild-mannered, actually quite aggressive. And and the thing is that beyond the, the trauma that all Israelis feel, and all Israelis know people who are, who are either killed on that day, have been killed since, they all have either serving themselves or have kids who are in service who have been called up. Very few degrees of separation. There are very few degrees of separation. But for members of the national security elite, there is on top of that a layer of guilt and shame uh, and rage that they failed and that they betrayed a trust. And that's going to go very, very deep. It does go very deep. And I think as, you know, as we work with the Israelis through this, it, it's very important that we in the United States understand that's what that elite is going through because it's going to color all of their decisions. You know, I have some experience of that myself, having uh, been in the White House on 9-11 and uh, talking with Bob Gates, who you and I talked to a couple of weeks ago on the yep. show. When he came in talking about one of his observations about all of us who had uh, been involved in the government on 9-11 was the determination that everybody had to not let this happen on our watch again. <clears throat> and, you yeah. know, and that I don't want to get into what that may or may not have you know affected in terms of people's judgment, but um, I, you know, I'm familiar with the phenomenon. Um, well, look, <clears throat> my, for what it's worth, not having been to Israel myself, but having spoken uh, with a number of Israelis over uh, the last uh, two and a half months, 75 days or so, whatever the number is since since the event, I too have detected just a, you know this profound, as you say, uh, traumatization uh, of Israeli society. And, and for all the reasons you outline, it's completely understandable. I guess I think you're in the Atlantic piece, you're writing really about both the nature of the failure and kind of, uh, you know, how the Israelis are recovering. Why don't you talk about that a little bit? So the, uh, let's start with the bad news. And the failure, this is, it's not just that this is a major watershed in Israeli history, which it is. This is undoubtedly the greatest failure 
um, in the history of the IDF, uh, the Israel Defense Forces, and their intelligence establishment, to include the Yom Kippur War. And I, I include the Yom Kippur War because that occurred far away. Uh, there was time and space to recover. The losses, although severe, were not you know, primarily civilian losses. And in the horrific circumstances that um, occurred, and the, and the failure was not the failure had some comprehensive elements to it, but much more comprehensive than this. There's a political failure. Uh, that's the failure of the Netanyahu government, which thought that it would be a great idea to have Qatar shoveling lots of money into Hamas, uh, and then for them to let in eighteen to 20,000 Palestinian workers, and then occasionally mow the grass, as the saying goes, uh, some retaliation when there's some rockets fired, and to think they had it under control, which they didn't. It was a strategic failure in that um, the high command seems simply not to have taken seriously that there would be a threat. Um, if, uh, you know, the, the Gaza border was radically under underdefended, most of the forces have been shifted over to the West Bank. Uh, there was simply not an appreciation that this would be could be a serious challenge. The on the intelligence side, there were some warnings and they had the plan, but the plan was dismissed as aspirational, uh, not as something that they could do. And some of the warnings, tragically, from some of these young women uh, who operated the observation stations on the border. Uh, were disregarded, I think, either whether it was because they were women or because, more likely because they were conscripts. Um, that was serious. There was a operational failure in several respects. On 3 o'clock in that morning, on uh, that Saturday, October 7th, there was a phone call because the intelligence was picking up some serious uh, alarms. The chief of staff, uh, the head of the Southern Command, I think the head of the domestic security service, the Shabak, at the end of the conversation, the Shabak had alerted his counterterrorism force, and then the other two just went back to sleep. Um, it was an operational failure. The Israelis had positioned, they have a division, the Gaza division, which controls all the units immediately in the vicinity of the Gaza Strip. That headquarters and the headquarters of its two subordinate brigades we're in a base called Rayim, which is only a few kilometers from the border. It was overrun in the very beginning. And the result, some soldiers were killed in their beds. And um, what then happened was the, the soldiers at the base were so busy fighting for their lives, they weren't able to exercise command and control over the rest of the situation. So it was a chaotic several days of fighting along the Gaza Strip, with the result that, for example, near Oz, the kibbutz that I mentioned, a um, the guy who was showing us around said not a single bullet was fired by the IDF here. These guys left on their own. Um, a similar story at a place called Nachal Oz. We, we met this amazing retired Major General Noam Tibon, who gets a call from his son, who's in that kibbutz, uh, you know, there are terrorists outside and he dashes down with his wife and a pistol. An incredible story. 
They leave Tel Aviv around 7.15. They get in to the kibbutz, I think, at 2.30. He was the first IDF soldier to get there. So operationally, a disaster. Tactically, also a disaster. I mean, the, some of the kibbutzim were able to put up a fight. Actually, those that were able to have their internal security committees alerted were able to usually do a lot better than some of the others. The, the Hamas knew where to go for the armories of the uh, kind of local watch group. Uh, they had excellent uh, intelligence from the Palestinians who had been, the Gazans who had been working there. Um, but, you know, what then happens is a lot of Israeli soldiers go rushing on their own down south, including from a lot of their elite units. The problem is that it's it's not done in a particularly coordinated way. And in a number of cases, in one case at least, they ended up going into a hot landing zone. So, um, so an elite unit comes in on a helicopter. They, you know, they thought this was a limited incursion, and the helicopter gets shot down. And uh, Hamas had set they had set ambushes outside these kibbutzim. So Sayeret Matkal, which is their equivalent of U.S. Army Delta, lost more soldiers in thir- in one day than it had in the previous thirty years. So. Um, all across the board, this is a comprehensive failure. Now, the good news, if one can speak of such, is um, as is so typical in Israeli history, and this is a repeated pattern, they recover very quickly. Um, A tremendous, tremendous amount of spontaneous self-organization you know, reserve units began showing up over strength because guys who had been out of them for a long time put on their old uniforms and show up. The Israelis are able to, in very short order, mobilize 350,000 troops. Um, they eventually kind of restore order. It, by the way, the last terrorist was killed two and a half weeks after October 7th. He had gotten as far as Beersheba. Um you know, as we all know, they go into the Gaza Strip. They've done, I you know, I think you have to say on a kind of military technical basis pretty well, uh, given the difficulty of, of the circumstances that they're going into a very dense urban environment, which has been carefully fortified and prepared. So, and, you know, and the society has been tremendously resilient. You know, it's a remarkable thing that this disaster happens and uh, the, the the planes are full, not leaving the country. The planes are full go, getting into the country, uh, which says something. But it's, uh, when you step back, it's just a colossal, colossal failure. And they know it. I mean, they don't need anybody to tell them that. Given that colossal failure, in the past, uh, you mentioned uh, 1973. Obviously, there was the Agronaut Commission, you know, after after that, which led to a big shakeup in Israeli politics, it actually really led to a uh, a gigantic shift in Israeli politics within a few years in 1977, sort of the end of the labor left dominance of Israeli politics and the uh, beginning of the period of, you know, um, right wing dominance in Israeli uh, politics from 1977 on with a couple of minor exceptions. 
same after the Sabra Shatila massacre in 1982, have another commission um, after the 2006 war, the Vinograd commission also led to, you know, big shakeups, resignation of the chief of defense, et cetera. What, you know, what's happening now? I mean, you get the sense that politics has been adjourned and that certainly suits Bibi uh, because he would like to yeah. keep it adjourned and, you know, put off this reckoning that presumably will come. But just, uh, you know, in the last 24 hours, we've had a decision of the higher court to throw out the judicial reform that was passed um, in the summer uh, that was at the behest of, of uh, Bibi's uh, government, um, which divided Israeli society in, enormously. So is the adjournment of politics about to end? Is politics about to bubble up even in the midst of a war? Uh, what's your sense? And what's your sense of, of, you know, Bibi's longevity? I mean, a lot of people think he's done ultimately, but, you know, he's been fairly resilient himself as a politician. So I think, you know, politics has been put on pause, but as you, as you said, I mean, <clears throat> that pause may be coming to an end. I mean, it, the, the loathing of Bibi is now pretty much universal. You may have a few loyalists uh, still in the Likud, but I don't think he has many. I mean, the issue is, more people in the really hard right, uh, like uh, Itamar Ben Gvir and uh, what's the name, Smotrich. The the conundrum is that there's no immediate mechanism for getting rid of him. Um, on the one hand, on the other hand, the, the popular outrage is so profound that it's inescapable that he gets driven from power. I mean, there's just there's no question about it. I think you know you mentioned these commissions. I'm sure there'll be another one. After this, it'll be unsparing. It'll be brutal. Um, a lot of people will resign. Actually, a lot of the senior military people have already indicated I take responsibility and I'm going to resign when this is over. Um, you know, what one of our interlocutors said, look, there's going to be demonstrations with a million people in the streets of Jerusalem. The government won't be able to function. People are so mad. And I, I tend to think that that's Right. Somebody else said a line which I think was is very apropos. He said, you know, after a really big earthquake, there are usually big aftershocks. And the aftershocks are as consequential as the earthquake sometimes. I think that's the case here, too. I think it's too early to tell what realignments of politics this is going to cause. Um, I have a hunch that you'll see new new actors entering politics. That's one thing that I think will happen, that, uh, you know, some of these reservists, when they come back from Gaza, who will be absolutely infuriated, uh, some of them, and, and who are a public-spirited bunch, by and large, some of them will enter politics. There may be new parties. This is going to completely reshuffle the deck. So I think it would be a mug's game trying to predict that. I don't think BB can last. I mean, there is there is something almost sociopathic in his refusal to accept any kind of responsibility. I mean, he, he, as sometimes happens with sociopaths, he was, you know, he actually tried shifting the blame to other people early on. And the reaction was so ferocious that even he deleted the tweets or whatever it was. But I think he genuinely doesn't, he probably genuinely thinks this is unfair uh, somehow. So I, I think he, this is not somebody who is in the normal range of politicians at this moment. Um, it's a perilous situation for the country because, you know, you're, you're in the middle of a war with a political leader that nobody trusts. 
Um, and he's got a group of people around him in his war cabinet who are quite capable, but they don't trust him either. You know, one of the things that has been part of the political scene for weeks now are the demonstrations from the relatives of the hostages demanding another ceasefire with Hamas and another exchange of of hostages. Now, I mean, I guess there are a couple of questions I have here. One is, how many of the hostages do we think are actually still alive? I mean, the Israelis themselves have said they think something like 30 uh, either died in captivity or were killed. Um, I think that still leaves something like about 130 uh, or so hostages. Gutter, Turkey, others have been, the French have been trying to promote the idea of a ceasefire to allow for a return of of at least some, if not all, of the remaining hostages. There does seem to be some pressure building. Hamas has basically said, not unless it's a comprehensive ceasefire, you know, and we stop all of this, you know, they're not going to go along with that. There seem to be some tensions between the internal leadership, which I, I have to explain. I have to think are under enormous uh, physical pressure right now because yeah. the Israelis are closing in on them. Yahya Sinwar and Mohammed Daif, among others, Marwanisa. Um, what, what um, as opposed to the guys living in Dubai and, and shuttling to Cairo who are, you know, still kind of living the high life. What's your sense of this? I mean, is there going to be another ceasefire? Will there be another hostage exchange? Uh, do the Israelis lose, do they lose momentum from you know this is I want to get into the some questions about the operation itself but it strikes me that if you stop and pause it allows Hamas to reset to refresh yeah. they just launched a big uh, barrage of rockets to ring in the new year uh, into Israel um, what's your sense of all that well the, you know the the some of the least satisfying conversations I have to say were when we talked to the Israelis about. Uh, war aims. You know, they have a list of six objectives, but you know when you begin po- poking at them, as with all war objectives in any war that I'm familiar with, you find that they're either vague or contradictory. Biggest challenge right now is there is unfortunately a terrible tension between the desire to destroy Hamas as a military entity, as a political entity ruling Gaza and the desire to recover the hostages, because you probably won't be able to do both. And um, no, you know, no Israeli would, would openly say, unfortunately, it's much more important to destroy Hamas, but some of them probably think that. Uh, they wouldn't even say that to us, I think, but I, I'm sure that some of them, you know, with deep pain in their hearts, um, believe that. So I think that's a problem. Now, the, you know, the, of course, the other problem is, can you actually destroy Hamas? Can you, I mean, they've inflicted a lot of damage. I mean, they may have killed over half of their operatives. They've wiped out a lot of senior leadership. Um, but, you know, to some extent, it's an ideology. It's, you know, it's an outgrowth of the Muslim Brotherhood of Egypt. Um, and the Israelis are not willing to simply you know, keep a quarter of a million troops in Gaza and kind of comb the place from end to end indefinitely, which is probably what it would take if you were really to, you know, exterminate every last one. So I think they're they're in a hard spot. And I'm not sure how well set up they are to really face that. Now, I think what would ease their situation somewhat is 
if they managed to kill Sinwar and Mohammed Daif and uh, Marwan Issa and one or two others, in other words, the kind of the absolute top echelon, I think that would give them the kind of political coverage to pull back a bit. But in any case, however this plays out, and I, you know, I wouldn't presume to call it um, beyond that. I mean, they will never have a real ceasefire with Hamas. They will have a pause. But I think from now on, you know, if they see a Marwan Issa or Mohammed Deif or any of these guys out in the open, and it really won't make a difference where they are, they'll kill them. You know, if they see Hamas units training out in the open, as they saw in the months and years before October 7th, you know, they'll open fire on them. If they see, you know, demonstrations in Gaza on behalf of uh, uh, Hamas, they'll open fire on those too. I mean, they're, you know, the, the key thing is, I think from the Israeli point of view, the existential issue is in some ways on the table again. And so they're playing by World War II kinds of rules. And this, by the way, I think this also speaks to the issue of Palestinian civilian casualties. It's not that the Israelis are callous. You know, they have their military lawyers, uh, the way we have our JAGs, who, and they do shape targeting. I think they've kind of loosened the rules of engagement, to put it mildly, uh, but they still have rules of engagement and they pretty much adhere to those and so on. But at the moment, I think the way they think about um, you know, civilian casualties is probably the way British civilians thought about German civilian casualties in 1944, or we thought about Japanese civilian casualties in 1944, which is not that we're out there trying to kill civilians, but, you know, it's that kind of war. Yeah, I was reading an interesting article actually this morning about Israeli, U.S., and U.K. kind of attitudes towards both public and you know, elite uh, legal opinions about the tension between protecting forces and risk of collateral damage and civilian casualties. And perhaps not surprisingly, as you might expect, the Israelis lean very heavily on the side of protecting their forces with, you know, whatever that uh, does to, you know, civilian casualties. Um, The U S uh, is a little bit kind of in the middle and the UK is at the extreme end of you got to protect the civilians, even if it you know means you're running risk. To, and you and I experienced that when, you know, British lawyers would stop strikes in Iraq kind of, you know, it's just at the moment we were about to hit people or their yeah. guys were about to hit people. You know, the, the, rel- the relevant comparison, I think, would have been if you could only survey in the United States or Great Britain, the parents or... Um, right husbands or wives of military personnel. Right. Yeah. And then I bet you would have gotten a very different, different yeah. answer. I mean, they, you know, one of the things that really does strike me about this whole episode as, as with Ukraine, by the way, and I think maybe we can get into what some of the connections are, because I think there are connections. These are wars like world war two and they are existential. They are against an enemy who is incredibly cruel and duplicitous and just evil. And we're not used to that. You know, Iraq, I mean, they were evil. <laughs> um, Al-Qaeda in Iraq with plenty evil. This was far away. It was not existential. Um, you know, it was a small 
kind of section of American society that was fighting it. It could go on for a long period of time without damaging the economy or anything like that. So our, our framework is just completely, completely out of whack. And it, I think it, it helps account for some of the really poor analysis that you've had. Um, I mean, it, as long as I'm just on that riff, I, and maybe we can talk about this too. You know, our hometown newspaper, the Washington Post, which mm-hmm. is really sort of rebranding itself as Al Jazeera on the Potomac, I think, you know, has been just awful in its understanding of what the Israelis are going. I mean, they don't, I don't think they're even trying. And instead, it's a you know, it's simply a litany of um, humanitarian reporting. Some of it very bad. Some of the things that they've had to retract, uh, including the story about mothers being separated from their babies, where they didn't even bother to check with the Israelis, and they you know had to fess up that they completely misreported that. But I think it's because you have reporters who, for whatever reason, just can't conceive of the kind of war that the Israelis or in a different way, the Ukrainians find themselves uh, fighting. Let me let me ask about that. I, I, look, I take your point completely about the uh, World War II like quality of this. I do get the sense. And I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but. That the Israeli that the Israelis, although they now are developing better intelligence, when they went in, did not have great intelligence. I mean, so for instance, what I've heard, and I'd be interested in what you've heard, is that the tunnel network is much deeper, more ramified, more sophisticated than even they had uh, suspected b- beforehand. Um, they're dropping lots of, I mean, crazy amounts of ordnance. And my sense is a lot of that is because they're trying to destroy the tunnels from above rather than try and fight below ground to destroy. And that that the inevitable consequence of that is collateral damage and horrible visuals that the Israelis have to to deal with. So I'm curious whether that you think that's correct reading. And the second point I would uh, ask you about is I've been surprised at how much leash the Biden administration has been giving Israel. I mean, my sense is privately they're pressing them to be more targeted, to to you know stop dropping all the bombs and missiles, and to you know go towards more kind of targeted killing uh, of uh, you know uh, Hamas senior leaders, perhaps in in hope that, as you were suggesting, the Israelis can then declare victory and stop. Uh, but in general, I've been pretty impressed by you know the resupply. Uh, you know, the uh, very quick and quiet resupply, even while there are these clearly some tense conversations going on. What's your sense of, of all of that? Sure. So those are two different things. I think on the intelligence side, they, they have been surprised by the, uh, as you say, the depth and ramifications of the uh, Gaza Metro, as they call it. Um, you know, part of the intelligence failure appears to have been a very heavy uh, reliance on visual intelligence and on signals intelligence and, and in, on imagery. I mean, one thing we were told, which I found sort of jaw-dropping, is they closed their open source intelligence operation. In that part of the world, I think it was Bernard Lewis said, he said I think as the great Middle East expert said, uh, you know, in some parts of the world, you uh, don't pay any attention to what politicians say in public, but you believe what they say in private. In this part of the world, it's the reverse. You pay no attention to what they say in private and every and all attention to what they say in public. 
and there were, you know, there were a lot of warning signs and things that were publicly available in terms of Sinwar's speeches and so on. So, for example, they made a television series in Gaza showing how they would break through at multi, many different points and do these things. And Sinwar gave the producers some sort of award and makes a big speech saying, yeah, this is exactly what we're going to do. And it got away from them. Um, I also think I, I, another one of our interlocutors said there's probably a human intelligence failure here too. That you know. When By the be- way, I think that has maybe some <laughs> some possible lessons for us because we've also oh, think devalued open source intelligence and our own intelligence. I, I, I think there are enormous lessons for us, and we we would be fools if we just said, well, that shows you the Israelis are not competent. Because the truth is, at the end of the day, despite everything and everything that I've just said, they're very smart. You know, they're very serious. Um, they put a lot of effort and resources into it, and they still got fooled. So, you know, we need to think about what that means for us, because I think it does have profound implications. The one thing I would say on the intelligence side, I think it's true in any war that as you get into contact with the enemy, you develop more intelligence. I mean, if you remember back to the first Gulf War, I think we started with two Iraqi nuclear targets, and we ended up with either 24 or 26. I forget how many. You know, it, just the rubbing up of forces against each other, whether it's on the ground or in the air, generates intelligence. In this case, the Israelis, they've been capturing people who they interrogate. They've been capturing laptops and telephones and, you know, God knows, and they've probably been planting sensors and different things. So I'm sure they're they're learning a lot more. And, and you know, the great strength of the Israelis is not necessarily getting it right in advance, because I'm not sure that they're any better than anybody else at that. But they're really good at learning fast. And I think you're seeing that. On the administration, I, th- I think the, at the heart of this is Biden himself. Um, you know, I shudder to think what this would be like if Barack Obama was president. I think Biden has a deep visceral sympathy for the Israelis. He um, he has enormous credit over there. I mean, they love him. He's more popular than Bibi, that's for sure. Oh, he, I mean, he, he no, I mean, one of them said he w- we would elect him president in a heartbeat. You know, by showing up there in the middle of a war, kind of, you know, metaphorically put his arm around the country, that made a huge difference. And, you know, the question is what he'll do with that political capital. But but the main thing is he did it, and I think it was sincere and was from the heart. I suspect that, um, you know, there's a general pattern out there, which is I think governments are more sympathetic to the Israelis than populations. And I think the governments are because they know what the enemy is like. I mean, you know, most Americans or anybody else for that matter doesn't really been thinking about people, you know, ISIS or movements like this. And, you know, what you see there is something that's clearly recognizable, this kind of reveling in the most barbaric forms of cruelty and publicizing it and delighting in it, not being ashamed of it, but really proclaiming it. I mean, we all, you know, everybody who who's had that sort of experience during the, uh, the wars of the last 20 years says, oh yeah, no, I've seen that one before and I know which side I'm on. So I think that that helps explain it a lot. Where I think the administration had fallen down, actually, I'd be really curious to know your view is, you know, I don't, Iran did not know this was coming. I think that's pretty clear. Hezbollah did not know it was coming. 
if they had, there could have been a very dangerous moment where they would have jumped into the war. But for sure, Iran is playing a very large role. When, when we looked at the Hamas weapon stocks, striking how many of them had come through Iran, striking at the uh, design of the improvised explosive devices, the drones. I mean, the, the Iranian hand is all over this. And of course, Iran is all over Hezbollah. It's all over those Shiite militias in Syria. And of course, all over the Houthis. And I think the mistake that we're making is we're, so far at any rate, not doing anything to really hit the Iranians hard enough to tell them to knock it off. I and mean, again, you know, this goes back totally to agree. I mean, you and, you and I remember, you know, the, the difficulty the Bush administration had in agreeing to do anything to the Iranians. But when you did, they backed off. Right. You know, there's, there's a great metaphor here when we're getting brief on the, the front, uh, the Lebanon frontier, there are infiltration attempts all the time. So we asked, okay, how's it happened? They said, well, the Iranians will train Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which is kind of a smaller group that operates in Gaza. And they will, the you know, the Iranians will kind of lead them right up to the fence. And they'll say, see, you can get through right over there. Go for it, guys. Right. We'll be rooting for you the whole way. Yeah, we're, you know, we're behind you a thousand percent. Right. And, you know, they invariably get schwacked. But, you know, you know, the Iranians are undoubtedly cheering them all the way. So I think that that's where, you know, the, the administration is making a mistake. It's, you know, it is just another version of something you and I have kind of torn out our thinning hair about for some time, that the administration does sort of the right thing, but too little, too late, too hesitantly and too fearfully. And because I think their understanding of escalation dynamics is is very flawed, and you know, it, particularly here with the Iranians, you know, yeah, I, you know, look, I it's I think it's inexplicable in some sense, you know, because for all the reasons you just articulated, Elliot. I mean, obviously, if you don't, you know, impose costs on the Iranians, you're going to get more of this behavior right. because they're accomplishing their ends, and it's not costing them very much. That seems just very, you know, hard to understand. I, I think that there's a kind of psychological obstacle that uh, a lot of the folks in the administration have, possibly including the president. And that is that they believe deeply in their souls that the Bush administration made terrible mistakes by going into Iraq and getting the United yeah. States way too involved in the Middle East. And that, uh, you know, we're overcommitted there and we need to get, you know, uh, out of the Middle East, ultimately, so that we can concentrate on the pacing challenge of China, etc. Um, and I think that is, you know, fundamentally disabling because it, it convinces them that anything they do that would be along the lines you and I suggest would be to repeat the mistakes of the Bush administration. Yep. And and so I think they find it very hard, you know, intellectually to get there. Number one. Number two, I think there is another issue that is more real, which is the Saudis, as you know, have been trying to negotiate with the Houthis a, uh, a kind of ceasefire that would allow the Saudis to extricate themselves from Yemen, which is something that, uh, you know, this administration has been, you know, advocating for a long time uh, as well and has a lot of political support in the Democratic Party, by the way. And so... They're, you know, the administration, folks in the administration will tell you that the Saudis are telling us not to whack the, you know, the Houthis. 
you know, because that'll just lead to escalation. It'll derail this, you know, uh, incipient agreement. My reading of this, and I haven't talked to the Saudis, so what do I know? But my reading of this is that it's similar to some other discussions that you and I had, um, you know, back in the old days, which is what the Saudis don't want is the administration to do some pinprick, quote, proportional retaliation that stirs up the Houthis and leaves the Saudis with the problem. Right, exactly. But but doesn't solve it. Exactly. I think that's exactly right. and, And that's what, you know, if you look at the record of these guys, that's exactly what you would predict they would do. Yep. I, I find it interesting that the UK is actually suggesting that it's prepared to actually strike the Houthis. And I'm wondering whether the administration is going to basically say, yeah, fine, go ahead, knock yourselves out. I mean, that would be appalling if so. Um, no, the, I mean, the whole the Houthi thing is incredible. And, the, and it's, you know, you don't have to invade, you know, if you had a couple of B2 passes in the middle of the night, blew up a whole bunch of Houthi leadership and stockpiles and not coincidentally hit um, some of their Iranian advisors, I think would have a very salutary effect. But I agree with you. I don't think the administration is willing to, to take that, that risk. And, you know, the one other part of this is, and this gets to, I think, a deeper phenomenon in international affairs. People only think about the risk of action. They don't think, well, what are the risks of inaction? And and the truth is that inaction carries its own risks and you need to weigh those as well. Uh, But I don't think that's how they, how they think about it. Having said all that, I, I give them, I give them credit. I think they are giving the Israelis room to maneuver. Um, and, and that's and that's really important because if the Israelis don't come off with some sort of success, you are really setting up some much larger Middle East wars. Yes, possibly to include a nuclear component. I mean, I, I think the idea that you know nuclear weapons will always remain merely in the background in all this, um, particularly if Israel feels that it's up against an Iran that has nuclear weapons, I I don't believe that. Which of course they may be on the cusp of, because if you look at what the IAEA is reporting about enrichment levels, you know, uh, essentially the Iranians are creeping out of the restrictions that have kept them from uh, having a nuclear capability. So, um, you know, I I, uh, agree with that. You know, look, I think, again, the administration, I think, is very concerned about the um, prospect of escalation into a, a you know larger major war and that's not an unreasonable concern but i think it doesn't take into account the degree to which iran you know as you were suggesting in your comments that they're willing to fight to the last palestinian but um do they want to give up hezbollah which they see as their you know um, trump card against uh uh you know israeli escalation and attacks on their nuclear program um, I'm not sure. You know, I, I think that they would be very reluctant to do that. And we can see that in their behavior. I mean, they're poking and there's danger in that because obviously that could lead to a miscalculation and escalation. I think it's also feeding. You tell me whether I'm wrong about this. I think it's feeding a sense among the IDF leadership and the broader security leadership in Israel that we're going to have to take care of this problem in the north at some point because oh, we, can't, uh, we can't live forever 
with Hezbollah sitting there with 150,000 missiles and, and rockets, uh, you know, ready to overwhelm our defenses, you know, even if we get away from just kinetic interceptors, which we're already on the kind of wrong side of the cost imposition curve. But e even if we go to, you know, some kind of directed energy missile defense, which is a lot cheaper, we just can't live with this forever. We're just going to have to go and eliminate it, which is oh, the I, real I, of escalation. I, and and um, I, let me just reinforce that. So um, one of the things that this war has shattered has been that part of the Israeli national security conception or strategic conception, which has been around a very long time in many ways since the early days of Israeli independence, which is that you're going to have strategic warning. That if you invest enough in really good intelligence, you can tell when the other guys are about to do something, and that'll give you the time to launch a preemptive strike. That is to say, they're about to throw a punch, you throw a punch just before they throw their punch. I think they've now, you know, they've had two debacles now, 73 and then this, which make them realize, forget early warning. You may not get early warning. Second thing is, bear in mind, it's not just the missiles. So the when Hamas attacked, and it was a very elaborate, very professional um, operation, they came in three waves. The first wave were the Nukba, which are their kind of trained light infantry. You can see those guys on the video. They moved like professional soldiers. They were disciplined, good fire discipline. Um, you know, you could, the movements were tactical. Uh, then they had a second wave of the Kassam brigades who were more kind of you know, a kind of poor quality infantry type, and then just mobs of Gazans who wanted to come out and loot and murder and rape. Well, if you look at Hezbollah, what Hezbollah has is they've got something called the Radwan. The Radwan are basically the Nukba. It's the same idea. That is to say, a very highly trained light infantry. They're deployed very similarly. That is to say, all along that frontier, which, by the way, the Israelis... In violation of UN Security Council Resolution completely. 1701, which was negotiated while you and I were in government. Right. And they were, remember, they're supposed to be north of the Latani River. Well, they're right, right on the border where there are a whole bunch of Israeli settlements, and they have the same concept of operation, which is you attack simultaneously, you overwhelm the settlements, you know, you take hostages... Uh, and then you pull back, plus they have all the missiles, plus there's a kind of a maritime component too. They have a kind of a, an amphibious capability. So the Israelis are just not going to be willing to talk that. And so I think that, you know, the, the thing that we have to face is the Israelis, for entirely understandable reasons, are thinking about and will be thinking about preventive war, not preemptive war. And there's a, you know, it may just sound like the differences of V and a, uh, a couple of consonants, but it, it's not. It's it's a completely different concept. And it, um, that makes it a much more dangerous situation. I, one of the things I came away thinking was that there's a pretty good chance that there will be a Hezbollah war. I mean, there already is. You know, it's, and again, it's, it's, it's striking to me that, uh, you know, if you look at, I mean, I'll beat up on the Washington Post some more. You know, if you were to read, simply read the Washington Post, you wouldn't think that there's been this continuous low-level war, which is entirely caused by Hezbollah. Nobody says this because the Israelis have been doing anything. Right. right. It's because Hezbollah wants to get in on the act at some level. It continues, it escalates. Or at least to be seen to be getting in the act. To be seen to be getting into it. And, you know, that's 
just not going to be, wouldn't be tolerable to us. Sure. And sure. it's not going to be tolerable to the Israelis. I guess my, my own sense is, has been that timeline for this, right? It's all a question of like what the timing is going to be. And my sense was the Israelis have a lot of business to finish in, in Gaza before they, you know, take on a kind of two front uh, war. My sense is, you know, my sense had been in the next 12 months, maybe 30% chance of a, a war, you know, in the North. But after they moved the five brigades out or announced the movement of the five brigades out of Gaza, um, my kind of antenna went up a little bit and I'm, I'm thinking maybe it's I think they should. like 40% chance. I, I, I think that's right. I might even put it a little bit higher. Yeah. We're running short of time. I have one final issue I wanted you to address because you raised it. And that is the links between what you observed and learned in your trip to, to Israel and uh, Ukraine and other conflicts uh, going on around the world. So, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this and I'm going to at some point try to put this into writing. You know, this past year I went to Ukraine, I went to Israel and I went to Taiwan and, um, which is not a war zone yet, thank goodness, but could easily become one. And I think in all cases, I found things that are somewhat similar and disturbing, which is there's kind of a coalition operating in each case, and the other guy's coalition is getting closer and closer together. And it's interesting that the Russians and the Chinese have really tilted towards Hamas here, for example. Um, these are conflicts where the other side really has no compunctions about international law or even elementary decency of, of any kind. They are conflicts where the way it's not that the West doesn't react, we react, but we don't do enough. So I, uh, you know, as you and I've talked about the 1930s a lot, you know, it's not that the West did nothing when the Italians invaded Ethiopia or after the Marco Polo uh, Bridge incident in 1937, or Hitler's occupation of the Rhineland in 1936, they didn't do enough. And and there's just this sense that people are not, almost not paying attention. And there's a kind of complacency. And if, you know, if there's, if there's one lesson that everybody should take away from what happened in uh, on October 7th, in Israel's that, you know, that's intolerable. My, my friend, Mick Ryan, he, he's letting me quote this in the, uh, the article said, he said that he thinks every political and military leader should have to watch that horrible movie. He said, because so that they know what the price of strategic slovenliness is. And I believe that, I mean, this is, um, and it applies to us every bit as much as it applies to Israelis or Ukrainians or Taiwanese or anybody else. Well, that's an appropriately gloomy note on which uh, Shielded Republic can kick off the new year. It's going to be a very, um, it's going to be a very consequential uh, year. Our our producer is actually uh, on his Substack, son of a diplomat, has actually posted about that. I'll send it to you. It's there's going to be a lot at stake this year, both at home yeah. and abroad. And so, uh, stay tuned to Shielded Republic. We'll try and illuminate it all for you. And I'll, I'll try to be more cheerful next time, yeah. Eric, I promise. All right. It's good to have you back, Elliot. Get well, and uh, we'll talk next week. 
Very good. Look forward to it. See you.